Well, welcome everyone to the eight. Today is purely an afterthought from last week, and I'll kind of share why in a second, but I do want to share something personal. About six years ago, um, I have just been ordained as a priest, and a few months in, I was called to go to a clergy conference. I was called to go to a clergy meeting outside of Orlando, Florida. This is for the entire Southern Diocese. So there was about uh, 80, 90 priests coming together for this clergy conference, right? I will never forget the feeling I had going to my first clergy conference as a young 30-year-old priest and feeling so insecure. Like, right, I, I got ordained, I went to 40 days in the monastery, I felt like I was on cloud nine, I was so excited to see all the great things God will use and do in me, I just felt like, I was just, I was just so pumped for it to be into, into full-time ministry. And then I go to this clergy conference, and I'm surrounded by such a great group of, of great fathers, fathers and priests who have served me and my own childhood are there, I'm with them, and I'm looking at all of them, I'm like, I will never be like you. Like, you have inspired me, and like you, like, I've learned so much from you from, throughout my entire childhood. And here we are in, in the same clergy meeting together. And I felt, I remember going back to my room, you know, in, in between the appointments and the meetings, feeling so insecure because I kept on comparing myself to other priests, right? I've been a priest for two and a half hours. I go to this meeting, and there's priests that have been there, have been a priest longer than I've been on this earth right? And they're professional priests. I'm trying to figure out how to wear this hat. I'm trying to figure out all this kind of stuff. And they, they, they know their stuff. I mean, I just like, I felt so insecure. I started questioning, did I mishear God's calling for me to go into ministry? I felt so insecure comparing myself to other people. So as I mentioned, this entire conversation we're having today, and we will continue in a couple weeks, is an afterthought, because last week we talked about gratitude, right? All of you guys are appreciative, you're thankful, you, you're, you're grateful for, all of your, for life, you're grateful for many different things, you're grateful. But we also talked about unexpressed gratitude is ingratitude, not expressing gratitude is ingratitude. You're appreciative of your spouse, you're appreciative of your health, you're appreciative of, of, of your home, you're appreciative of different things. But do you ever express it in a full, elaborate, articulate way, right? Men try to call us all out. Because of our pride, how do we show appreciation? Appreciate you. Thank you, right? We never add any rich understanding or explanation of why we show appreciation. We feel like it, 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 it diminishes our pride to show, you know, to, 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 to show thanks to our spouses or to other people close to us. Sometimes we think it's weak. I don't know why, but I guess it's just how we're wired. It's a flaw. But anyway, we need to express our gratitude. And we looked at this ancient liturgical text that the church has given us over the centuries, which is titled The Prayer of Thanksgiving. At the end of this prayer of thanksgiving, we say, we ask and entreat your goodness, O lover of mankind. Grant us to complete this holy day and all the days of our life in all peace with your fear. All envy, all temptation, all the work of Satan, take it away from us and from all your people. But the request that we're asking God to do within us is to take away jealousy, to take away comparison, to take away our insecurity. And for those who are at the Divine Liturgy this morning, we talked about that because us comparing ourselves to others is a toxic thing in which we all stumble ourselves into. Um, I'll share something that's kind of sick about us, about all of us. 
You know what's sick about, about humanity is that maybe for those who we don't get along with or, you know, we don't see eye to eye with, and all of a sudden you see them struggle in something. You know what's so sick about you and me? There's a part of us that feels good. It's sick. It's sick, right? When you see someone maybe you're not on the same page with and something bad happens to them, they never got that promotion or something happened in one of their personal life, there's a part of you that's like, right? And then some of you spiritualize it. You know, it's like, oh, see, that, that's, that's from God. You know, whatever you sow, you reap, right? You, you, you add a nice theology behind it to not make you feel, feel so bad about judging them, right? So you, you, you spiritualize it. But the reality is we're sick. Just, just because we see someone else fall, all of a sudden it makes us feel good. Another thing we do, sometimes we make ourselves feel better by, push, by, by putting others down. We, we make sure the spotlight is on us at all times and we make other people feel bad in order to make us feel superior. And I wanted to, you, you already know this from life. There is no win in comparison. There is no win in comparison, right? You're chasing your tail if, you're, if your entire motive is just to try to catch up with this person or compare yourself to this other person or seek the approval of, of those people or your parents. Or Some of you, your parents have, have already departed and you're trying to still seek approval from someone and it's just wired within us. But sometimes we're chasing the wind. And hold that thought. We'll come back to that whole analogy as far as chasing the wind of us comparing ourselves to other. Some of us make purchases purely driven by comparison. We have to get that new house because didn't you just see their house that we went to? We can't, we, 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 we have to get on their level. How are they able to afford it? We should be able to afford it. I'm going to go house shopping. How are they driving that car? I didn't get a car, right? So sometimes we make poor purchases purely driven by comparing ourselves to others. Me personally, where this really hits home, I'm really into tech. For those who know me personally, I just, I'm, I'm enslaved to the Apple ecosystem. So I love iPhone. I love, I love all into Apple products, right? So, and I love to watch like the Apple events, like when they release the new iPhone. I'm a sucker to that kind of stuff. And, you know, all the, the animations and the transitions and, you know, this is the fastest iPhone we have ever made. No, duh. Of course, it's going to be faster this year than it was last year. But what happens? I'm watching the event. My phone is on the table. I'm watching the event, and they say, and that concludes our presentation of the newest, fastest iPhone. I look down, and then they say pre-orders next week. I look down at my phone, which is just a year, two, three years old, and I look at it, and I was like, what is this piece of junk doing on my desk? Because all of a sudden, I'm comparing this thing, which works perfectly fine, but what am I comparing it to? the fastest iPhone ever made. And Tim Cook says in such a way that just, you just was like, you're just drooling. Like, I have to order it, you know, and the flyover videos and the camera, you're just like, I gotta get that phone. And it's doing the exact same thing that my phone is doing now, but you're just, you're comparing it to something. There is no win in comparison. The fastest way to kill something is comparing it to something else. The fastest way to kill something that is special is comparing it to something else. Hear me out. If you get nothing else for today, get the screen and get the fastest way to kill something special is by comparing it to someone 
or something else. This is a timeless issue in humanity. This is not just a you and me thing. This will always exist because of our weakness, because of our brokenness. But I do want to share with you the words of the one of the wisest people that have ever walked on planet Earth. He said this around the year 180 BC. He goes by the name of King Solomon. He says these words right here. And I saw, this is King Solomon talking, and I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. King Solomon takes a step back and he realizes all the toil, all the achievement that I see a person doing is purely out of envy of another person. People are just trying to move up the ladder. People are just trying to purchase the fastest, bigger, coolest thing purely just out of envy for the person next to them. King Solomon is saying, I saw people determining where they were just by comparing where the person next to them was. And people were making life decisions of purchasing that thing, sometimes marrying that person purely off of comparison. It's, it, it's sad, but it happens. It's purely of just comparing ourselves to others. So King Solomon is saying this centuries and centuries ago, this is a timeless issue in which we can all relate to. I saw that all toil, all achievement spring purely from one person's envy of another. It's meaningless. It's as if you're chasing the wind. There is no wind in comparison. None of us here are able to capture the wind and chase the wind. That's a common analogy King Solomon used multiple times because there's no end, right? Right when you feel like I'm at their level. I, I got a house just like them. I got a car just like them. I am just as influential as them. I'm just as popular as them. I'm just, I've lost just as much weight as them. No insult to those who are doing the, the weight loss challenge, by the way. I'm saying. But it's all, it's, there's good comparison. Let me take a step back. I feel like I should say this disclaimer. There's good comparison, right? There's healthy, good spiritual uh, comparison. I'm, but I'm talking about the unhealthy, toxic type, right? That's the one I'm, I'm, I'm kind of highlighting today, right? So there's no end. There's no end. It's chasing the wind. There is no win in comparison. And he adds this cool line. I like this. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. So I'm just, when I first read that, I'm like, I think I'm just thinking a fool is just almost like, I know what I'm doing. They don't get me. He doesn't get me. They don't understand me. And a fool, just like, they know what's best for them. A fool is shooting themselves in the foot because they feel like they have life all figured out. That's a fool. Not my word. I'm not calling you a fool. King Solomon's calling us a fool. Right? For those who think, well, the, the deceptive thoughts, well, well, he doesn't get me, she doesn't get me, you know, nobody understands my story or my upbringing. If they were in my position, they would be doing the same. Those deceptive thoughts, those deceptive thoughts, you, you're a fool in the words of King Solomon. But we all fall into this trap of chasing the wind, of just trying to keep up with the Joneses, all right? <laughs> just yesterday, just yesterday, I was hearing a story from a, a priest. I was listening to a sermon. And... Uh, so a common tradition in the Coptic Orthodox Church is once a priest gets ordained, he goes to the monastery for 40 days um, for multiple reasons, right? So there was this one priest, uh, he was sharing his story, that when he got ordained and he went to the monastery, the monk, this was in Egypt, the monk asked him, you know, you know what type of priest do you want to be? So his response is like, oh, I want to be like priest X, Y, Z. Like he was really inspirational to me growing up. I really want to be like this spiritual father. He was a father to me growing up, and I want to become a priest like him. And the monk of the monastery said, the world already has priest X. The, pre the church doesn't need two. The church needs you to be you. And that really hit home to him. 
Like he was trying to, like he was striving to be a priest, like an, another priest that, that really inspired him. But the monk and the monastery are saying, the church already has that priest X. God wants you to be you with your own story of how God is working within you, with your personality, with your gifts, with your, with your traits. God is wanting to do something different in you. So there is only one of you, but sometimes, not sometimes, the reality is all of us. In some degree, sometimes it's toxic, sometimes it leads to irreversible decisions, but all of us fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to each other. And it is beyond, I mentioned this in the liturgy, and I'm sorry for repeating myself, because this is so big in this time in history. It's to the point that it induces tremendous stress and anxiety on the mind and on the body. We are not wired to sit there within 90 seconds. I'm able to compare myself to thousands of people that live on different parts of the world that I will never meet. You and I are not wired to sit there and compare ourselves to all the overexposure that we have to everything in the world on social media. But the second we pull out our phone and open social media, subconsciously, it's not a conscious thing, right? It's a subconscious thing. We're comparing how we look compared to that person. Our life compared, you look at their highlight reel, and then you, you look at yourself, and you're like, man, what am I doing wrong for them to be able to have that type of trip or to have that type of whatever, right? It plays with our mind. It's too much for us to bear, and it causes stress to our mind and to our soul. King Solomon continues. <clears throat> Better one handful with tranquility than two hands with toil and chasing after the wind. One more time, and we'll break it down together. Better one handful with contentment. This is sufficient. Better one handful with tranquility than two hands with toil and chasing after the wind. What is King Solomon saying? He's saying it's so much better if you're just content with what you have in one hand instead of you just trying to just chase after the wind, just ch you're just trying to move up, you're just trying to compete to that person or compare yourself to that person and you're just putting all your energy toward it. It's better to just be content with what you have in one hand as opposed to toiling and just breaking a sweat with using two hands full, but at the same time, you're never content. No appetite is ever fulfilled. We're always looking for more. I've used this analogy, and, but it's so true. What do we do after we've already eaten I'm like, I won't speak about you. Me, right? I'm, you're watching football. I'm watching football. I'm watching a game. I've already eaten. But what's the sick thing I do when there's a timeout? I go to the fridge. I'm already full, but I'm looking for more. No appetite is ever full. We're always looking and chasing something more in every sense, including food. But I want to maybe take a step away from this. So he's saying it's better to, with one handful to be content than having two hands which are full of toil and you are just chasing after the wind. The analogy or the imagery that he uses of hands, it's better to have one hand that's content as opposed to having two hands, you're just in toil, just trying to move up, trying to do bigger, better, faster. You're just trying to do that. It's better to have one hand that's content than this. From the very first century of the Christian church, there was a posture that the church gave us to help us to live a life of contentment. I know you want to be content. I know you want to be sufficient with what you have. I know that. The church told us to pray, like this. I got nothing, 
but I'm wanting God. And the church puts in front of us this posture. Is there anything wrong if I pray next Sunday like this? No. Is there anything wrong if I pray like this? No. We'll get to that in a little bit. But the church always gives us an external expression of an internal truth. The church from the very first century has given us external expressions of an internal truth. Even doing the sign of the cross, it's an external expression of an internal truth of the power of the cross that death has been redefined because of the cross through Jesus. It's an external expression that has an internal meaning. This ring is an external expression of an internal meaning. So we get this at a psychological level. For those, I hate to bring it up for all the Georgia fans, but, you know, I know, I'm sorry. who said woo? That's like, no, no, it's bad. It's a bad thing, right? So what happens when the fourth quarter begins of any game? What does everyone do? There we go. Thank you, Michael. Right? People go like this. What's up with that, by the way? They didn't do that when I was in college. I think it's a new thing. But anyway, so they go like this. Why? What's up with that? Or how about this? Uh, why for the national anthem? We'll put, put our hand over our chest. Can, can somebody say, you know, stand for the national anthem without putting their hand over their chest? Yeah. Why do people make a big deal about someone kneeling during the national anthem? Not to get all sensitive here. But why, why do people make a big deal? Why? There is something powerful in a meaning of doing something externally. There's an external expression that means something internally. When I'm putting, when I'm doing this, that means something. When I'm doing like this, that means time to get, it's focused, it's the last quarter, it's game time, right? There's always an external expression that means something internally. We get this at a deep psychological level that nothing is just external. It's not just a movement. It's not just a sign of the cross. It's not just I'm kissing an icon. There's something that transcends the limitations of what I am seeing. So we get that at a deep level. You, you see athletes kissing a, a, the trophy, right? Alabama, fan, uh, the, the football players said then, they kiss that icon at the end. Uh, the, not the icon. <clears throat> maybe, maybe. I would love for them to kiss an icon. But, uh. Kissing a trophy. They're kissing a trophy. It's not about the piece of metal, but they're kissing the trophy because it's not, the, it's not the, the, about the metal, but it reflects something so much bigger. In the same way, when I venerate an icon, it's not about the cardboard, for crying out loud, but I'm venerating how St. Mary bore the eternal being within her, and I'm venerating her wanting to emulate that in my life as well. Archangel Gabriel came to bring the good news. I'm desiring for that same good news to impact my life. So I'm doing something external which reflects something internally. So the church has given us this expression of praying like this. The church encourages us to do the sign of the cross. The church encourages us to do a prostration. The church encourages us to kiss icons, to kiss cross, because it's not about the kissing of the metal, but it points to something so much bigger. You don't believe me? Look from the early centuries of human history. King David said these beautiful words in his prayer. Let my prayer arise in your sight, God, as incense. Pause. Let my prayer arise, O Lord, to you, just as I see incense, because God, you asked me to pray with incense, so I say, yes, sir, I'm not going to question my logic. You want me to worship you with incense? That's what we do, and obviously, we do that till today. Lord, I'm, I want my prayer, just as it is being offered in this incense and is being risen to you, I'm yearning for my prayer to also rise to you, a visual. And let the lifting up of my hands be an evening sacrifice. So even King David is praying with a posture, 
He's not laying down on his couch. You know, he's not crossing his legs. He's not going like this. Saying, the lifting up of my hands, I'm offering that as an evening sacrifice. So we see even from the worship template that God has given Jews, given his chosen people, there's an evening prayer. This is why in our ancient Christian church, there are evening prayers. This is why on Saturday nights, there's a Vesper service, an evening prayer to prepare us for the morning sacrifice, for the morning prayer. So that exists, um, if we see it from the time of, of the Jews, even till to now. St. Paul told his companion, his friend, his disciple, St. Timothy, he told him these words, I desire then in every place that men should pray, Lift physically, do a physical gesture, expression of lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Because, you know, there's something that, because us being edified, it requires our our, our psyche, it requires our smell, it requires physical, it requires all these aspects because all of it's connected. Nothing is independent, nothing is separated from the other. They're all connected, right? You remember, you know, your hip bone is connected to your whatever, and you know the song, right? Everything's connected to each other, right? So... St. Paul is telling, is telling Timothy, I want you to pray by lifting up your hands. This will help you let go of anger. This will help you let go of that argument when you're praying like this. But imagine if you and I prayed, like, let us give thanks to the benefits and the mercy. Can you imagine? It doesn't go together. But I give thanks to you, you being the beneficent and merciful God. There's something powerful when my external posture reflects that. You get this in communication with each other. 80% of communication with each other is not in the words. It's in the body language. So that is also expressed in our liturgical worship. This is also expressed in the richness of our ancient Christian church. So I encourage all of us to utilize what the church has given us for centuries. Here's your question. What if I don't get it? of why, why everyone else is doing this or why everyone's doing something. I don't, want, I don't understand all that. It's okay. Still do it. <laughs> if you and I are part of a 2,000-year-old church that has given us these expressions to help us in our intimacy with God, even if we don't understand it right now, still participate in it and it will help us. You and I don't apply that logic to anything else. You don't sit there and, you know, uh, well, I'm not going to do this until I fully understand. Uh, you're not going to get on a plane until you fully understand everything of how the plane works. No, you don't understand, right? But you have trust. So in the same way, when we come to our spirituality and our connection with God, even though we might not understand everything the church gives us r- right now, <coughs> the church encourages us to grow in that, still utilize it, and let it be to our benefit, to our edification and growth in the richness of our church. So we looked at what, how God has told the Jews to pray as far as lifting up hands. St. Paul is, tell, is telling us to pray lifting up our hands. And here we even see in our liturgical text, the church, we pray in the, in the introduction to the fraction of every liturgy. We lift up our hands. So it, it is a, a, a universal common gesture in prayer. Maybe I'm the only one. I actually think this was a high five emoji. Am I the only one? Everyone thinks it's a... But now you see it. Isn't it I used to think this is a high five. But, yeah? It is a high five, but everyone... It turned, okay, so it originated as a high five? Okay, so I, we all use it now as a prayer thing. But is this a wrong way to pray? No, it's, the question is not a right or a wrong way to pray. But what did the church give us from the early centuries? The church has given us this. This actually came in the 12th century. The whole thing of putting your hands together in prayer, that came in the 12th century of the church. 
It's a friendship. It's a union with God. Uh, is it this way or that way? Or, uh, don't, don't focus on the which way. But ask yourself, okay, I'm wanting to connect with God in the most organic, fullest way. If the church, if this is the way the church has given us this posture from the early centuries, I want to utilize it. You pray like this, don't sweat it. But I just want to show that it was something that came later on in church history. You and I fight ourselves by comparing ourselves to others, and we hate it. It's exhausting. There is no end. So I want to leave you with a very broad suggestion that can help us suppress that thing within us that just we always comparing ourselves to others. St. Paul tells us these words. Brethren, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate and surround yourselves with these things. You have the power to trample on serpents and scorpions. You also have the power to unfollow certain people online. Nothing is preventing you. If, if, you're, if, if it's becoming a stumbling block because she's always posting those types of pictures and she's always dressed in this seductive way, you have the power to unfollow that. You're always comparing yourself to that family or to that husband or to that wife. You have the power to unfollow them. If it's planting a seed that grows within you, that leads you to a toxic level of comparison, and it throws you off because there's no end, there's no win in comparison, you have the power to unfollow that person. But surround, you, have the, you have the power to, to follow things that are edifying, that are useful, that are beneficial to you. You have that power to do that. So I, I know I'm stating the obvious, but I, I don't want us to just, we just become passively scrolling and we fall into that trap of comparison. You and I have the power to unfollow those things that are toxic to us. Where there's envy and that self-seeking motive of trying to outdo that other person, when that jealousy or that comparison, when that resides within our heart, this gives birth to a wide array of other things. St. James continues, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. So if the framework is jealousy, insecurity, that I'm not content with where I am, I'm just trying to, to, to chase after the wind, trying to outdo that other person, that will naturally give birth to confusion. That will naturally give birth to other evil things that throws us off. And then you and I will wake up one day, how did I get to this stage? How did I, how did I do this to my family, to myself, to my friendships? Because of what? Because I'm just trying to keep up with who? An imaginary person. Or I'm, I'm trying to, 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 to prove it to who? There's no win in comparison. Where comparison begins, contentment dies. Where comparison begins, contentment dies. Two last things I promise you for us to act upon this week. I'm going to celebrate what God has given others. You choose. I'm going to put the spotlight not on me. I'm going to intentionally praise or honor or elevate or esteem someone else. I'm going to celebrate what God has given others. 
Like, imagine if that becomes part of our language, of how we elevate and esteem others, especially when that's their love language. Imagine the power of what we can do. So make that an intentional thing of elevating and esteeming and celebrating others. Another thing I want us to do, I'm going to leverage what God has given me. We'll talk about more of that in a couple weeks after Santa, next week is Santa, the week after that we'll talk more about this. To leverage what God has given you. You have been entrusted with a unique story of what God has opened and what doors God has closed in your life. Leverage what you and I have been entrusted with. Leverage what you and I are renting. Because all this is a rental. We eventually go back home. This is not home. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the age to come. We're looking for that. So what what do you and I have that we are borrowing that we are called and entrusted to manage, to use for someone so much bigger than ourselves? We'll continue this in a couple weeks. Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, you have entrusted us with so much. But sometimes because of our envy, our jealousy, our insecurity, our pride, we lose sight of what you have given us. But Lord, we come to you as your children. Lord, we come to you with our weakness, wanting to see you, wanting to experience you, wanting to strengthen our intimacy with you. Lord, suppress this this sin that's within us of comparing ourselves to other. And for us to see ourselves in the same way, Lord, that you see us. Because nothing is haphazard. Lord, you have created none of us by accident or randomly. But what you have given every single one of us is intentional, it's pure, and it is for our benefit. And through the prayers of all your saints, Lord, hear us as we pray together saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. As we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Stay tuned for next Sunday. We'll have Santa in town, and then we'll continue this conversation the week after that.